Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about what is really a worldwide space race. Uh, we've got R- Russia launching still. Uh, China is putting stuff up. Uh, Japan. Uh, we've got uh, Iran attempting to to put things up and actually putting some space junk up. Um, we've got uh, others involved. Jim, uh, where's this all going from a military standpoint? Well, the uh, problem is the offense. Who has the capability to uh, disable, destroy, or even modify uh, other people's satellites in in wartime or not in wartime? Uh, There are fears that uh, the enemy is going to uh, uh, conduct a undeclared war. Uh, against uh, satellite capabilities. Now, right now, we're the most vulnerable. There are over a thousand satellites, operational satellites up there, and most of them are Western. Most of them are American. Uh, with SpaceX, we will, we are becoming, uh, you know, ascendant, as it were, in terms of launching. The Russians are having terrible problems: quality control, lack of money. Uh, they, uh, they are. Basically, you know, on a nosedive, you know, towards the basement, but they're still number three. They used to be number two for a long time, uh, but the Chinese surpassed them. The Chinese, however, uh, are still using uh, Russian technology. Now, that is good news because if you impose a certain degree of quality control, which the Russians lost, uh, the stuff works. But the Chinese are having problems. Uh, and of course, they haven't got SpaceX yet. Uh, but don't be too surprised if you see that showing up. The technology that uh, that SpaceX uh, developed has been, uh, how should I put it, known for a long time. Nobody actually got it to work, uh, given how secure you know American corporation uh, networks are. The Chinese may have already or are hard at work trying to get in there and uh, save themselves a lot of work. Um, it doesn't give them a, a, a basically a green light because they, while getting the uh, the technical uh, details, um, it still takes a while to uh, uh, develop the manufacturing finesse. That's something that uh, people tend to forget. It's what kept the Russians in, in distant second place during the Cold War. And it's one reason the Chinese have not, for example, been able to uh, manufacture military-grade engines to the same degree that not just the United States, but also Britain and France uh, have been able to do. Um, But they are, like I say, they're hard at work at it. The one thing the Chinese have to worry about is if uh, if, if the current morale problem, (laughs) as the Chinese like to put it, uh, in China... Uh, you know, gets worse. Uh, Chinese people are not happy with their emperor. I mean, their their chairman. No, uh, you you got it right. <laughs> no, uh, in fact, many, especially in the south, you know, that's where the saying, you know, uh, the the mountains are tall and the emperor is far away. Well, he's a lot closer now, um, and the um, and that's where a lot of the most of the innovation, not just Hong Kong, 
but the the uh, the uh, province uh, just north of the Hong Kong, uh, that is where a lot of the uh, economic progress has been made in the last 30 years. Now that's stalling. Now, in fact, the, the current econom- economist prediction is that that China will have no econ- GDP growth in 2020. Now they're rapidly trying to hide exactly the damage done by COVID-19, the, the Wuhan virus, as they don't like to call it. Um, but uh, again, because of the internet and their imperfect uh, Great Firewall of China, uh, details are getting out and they're not looking very good. Uh, so, But China is still a major contender, not the Russians. Um, China is becoming more dependent on satellite technology, uh, satellite putting satellites up. Uh, they design and build their own. Uh, the Russians have been hurt in that department by the sanctions. Uh, they cannot get the latest uh, chip technology uh, from the West anymore, at least not legally, and you really can't import what you need. We're talking about access to the fabs, the fabrication plants. The Chinese, uh, for some reason, well, the Chinese don't have the latest fab technology. They're, they've been working on it. They, they, by numbers, they have a lot of the fabs, fab uh, um, uh, manufacturing capability. Uh, but South Korea is right behind them. Um, and so the, the West, in effect, has a uh, still has an edge there. Um, but the China, the Russians are crippled right now. Uh, they basically uh, they've stopped making um, all sorts of industrial equipment, including satellites, uh, and uh, that's why their GLONASS, their their, their version of GPS, uh, they had it operational in the mid '90s. The, the financial collapse after the Cold War ended. Uh, uh, made it impossible to keep refreshing the satellites. Uh, they had a new generation of GLONASS satellites that lasted, you know, more than five years, lasted about seven years. Uh, they were in the midst of replacing those with the third generation, which lasts 10 years, when the uh, sanctions hit. And now their they're, they're, uh, GLONASS uh, uh, array, as it were, which is complete, uh, is starting to disappear, you know, one satellite at a time. China, meanwhile, finally got Baidu up there. That's all locally made stuff. May not be the latest and the greatest, but it's better than what the Russians got and the Chinese can manufacture their own. So in terms of Space Force capabilities, the Chinese have the equipment to become a a premier player, the number one player in offensive operations. Uh, Defensive operations is a different story. One of the first things the American Space Force went after uh, you know, basically collected under their purview are electronic uh, devices for intercept, intercepting satellite uh, signals, uh, for protecting our own, um, and that technology is is advancing. Uh, that basically allows you to do a lot of damage or a lot of defense from the ground. Uh, getting the satellites up there is a problem because once they're up there, without the space shuttle, or something like it, and that might be, and and there's progress being made in in using robots, which engineers and scientists have have advocated for decades. Um, It's really difficult to repair or, you know, maintain. Refueling is a big deal. Most satellites can last a lot longer, like our Keyhole, our our premier uh, spy satellites. Uh, They can last a lot longer if you can refuel them. Because they're they're built to last. Some of them have lasted more than twenty years beyond their their how should I put it you know uh, stated you know life. 
Um, and if you can make little repairs and keep refueling them, you can keep up that long, keep them up there longer. That saves you a lot of money. Now, now, in theory, that space shuttle was supposed to solve that, but that's spun way out of control in terms of cost. Uh, and SpaceX is an enormous advantage over not just the existing, uh, you know, launchers, uh, but also the space shuttle. So the price curve as it usually does in technology, is going way, way down. And we can thank Mr. Musk for that, uh, despite his use of recreational drugs. Maybe <laughs> because, of, um, because he has basically inspired a lot of the engineers and scientists who are already there, already existed. We're fed up with NASA, we're fed up with uh, the uh, Lockheed, and who's the other, the two outfits that had basically a, 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 a government-subsidized uh, uh, monopoly, which is now gone. Uh, I mean, they're clawing, trying to stay in business, but they can't because they haven't got the uh, uh, the cost efficiencies that SpaceX has. And SpaceX is moving ahead. Uh, they're basically developing uh, more and more landable components uh, for uh, launchers. Uh, and this is something that the Chinese are really concerned about because if this gives us a large capability in uh, putting up and uh, replacing satellites as well as and Musk also has a robotics operation, uh, as any good you know uh, satellite launcher uh, firm does. Um, and it's not just self-driving cars he's been working on, but also uh, robots that can repair other satellites. Uh, that is an enormous advantage. So the Space Force uh, edge comes from technology. Well, that's no surprise, of course. But the question is, who has what technology, who is working on what technology, and who's likely to have what technology? And so far, we're looking pretty good in that department. But the Chinese have been extremely resourceful, and they depend a lot. Their their military strategy right now, as it's published, and as it can be deduced, even if you couldn't read, you know, Chinese, uh, from what they're actually, you know, putting on the ground or into space, um, is... To, uh, to basically gain information superiority. Now, that depends not just on hacking and, and being able to manipulate the Internet, etc., but also being able to uh, disable uh, satellites. And that's some place where it, uh, Space Force may run into problems because one of the better ideas before uh, we had a new uh, branch of the, the military was the Navy was pushing for putting a few... Uh, 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 a few uh, of their their Trident uh, ballistic, launch ballistic missiles uh, in the subs, not with nuclear warheads, but with uh, 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 CubeSats, communication satellites, maybe some large ones, but preferably smaller ones. CubeSats are a big deal. These are small satellites. Jeez, uh, I, I haven't got it up in front of me right now. Uh, we've done several articles on that, but one just recently. Um, they have made huge uh, jumps in technology and effectiveness. Uh, these are the satellites which for years were piggybacked on regular satellite launches. I mean, there was excess space, there was space, and there was volume and uh, some weight you know, left over. So it was really not much of an additional cost. They're sticking some CubeSats. A lot of the earlier ones were basically, you know, college experiments. Uh, they, they, you know, these the satellite launcher people were pretty free with that because, hey, it was great publicity. But now it's become a commercial operation. Uh, and the Russians have taken to that. They were, they were quick to go off the mark on that. 
they uh, took some of their retired ICBMs, the old liquid fuel jobbies, uh, and and now they are they are capable of launching CubeSats. They were capable of launching smaller satellites, uh, but now with CubeSat technology, they can launch a lot more satellites. And a lot of the uh, the new uh, communications arrays, you know, hundreds or a thousand satellites going up there, these are basically CubeSats. So that goes to show you what can happen, you know, when you have a, a large gaggle of these, but even a small gaggle, you know, a half a dozen or a dozen of them working in concert for a specific purpose can basically replace a lot of the large satellites we have up there now for communications or, you know, for military purposes. So it's, it's basically, it, it, it's a good move to consolidate the, the Space Force capability. The question is, will the, will the, the uh, Space Force be able to wrangle the Navy? I mean, we had, when the SOCOM was established in the 80s, it took several decades to get the Marines to sign up. Uh, the Navy, to their credit, they were quick to basically incorporate their SEALs. Um, and the Air Force, all they really had was the uh, uh, the uh, Air Sea Rescue, who are basically commando-type uh, folks, uh, and some some uh, fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, but it was the um, uh, but it was the Army that contributed most of the the uh, SOCOM manpower. Now it's the Air Force who has a lot of the assets, and so they have no problem. They see the Space Force as a Allied, as it were, a uh, a descendant of the um, the Air Force, and they do have a very tight, you know, uh, link with that because a lot of the, the the senior people going in on the first generation are Air Force. Uh, they, they, I haven't been able to get any sense what the Navy is going to do, whether they're going to respond and, and jump in with as much as they can, or whether they're going to basically play, you know, petulant child. Uh, that's Pentagon politics for you. So. There we are, you know, theoretically, we're looking good. In practical terms, eh, next year or so, time will tell. Austin? Uh, Let me just pick up on a a couple of points uh, that uh, Jim made. He mentioned the uh, U.S. advantage in uh, electronics, electronic surveillance, and uh, being able to uh, track uh, transmissions up and uh, transmissions down. I, I suspect, and this is this has appeared in a couple of things that J- Jim's written over the last four or five years on on uh, the space issue, that we've uh, got advantages in unjamming as well. Now that's is that defensive? Yeah, but it it gives us an advantage in keeping our uh, satellites uh, providing uh, information when someone tries tries to do it, and it's a, that's a a tricky world out there, and it's also something you don't want to give away. But if if uh, our adversaries slash enemies decide that they're going to blind uh, uh, an important uh, satellite, um, as I say, one that's uh, uh, like Sibbers that's involved in uh, strategic missile defense. Actually, oper- you know, operational level mi- missile defense as well, is that uh, we can protect them from that kind of uh, e- electronic uh, assault. Uh, I'm not sure where our adversaries are. Uh, maybe NSA and CIA have a better picture of it. Maybe they don't, but I suspect our adversaries believe or know we've got a, a, an a, a advantage there. And it's uh, 
it, it, it could be very big, Dan, in the uh, initial stages as, as you approach a conflict when our suddenly our adversaries thinking they're going to blind us discover they can't. Uh, it, therefore, it has a, a diplomatic information edge uh, as well as, as military. <clears throat> now, there's, there's this uh, – Jim's written about this. I haven't. But that space fence surveillance system radar, it, that's really a, a finer version of other uh, near and uh, mid-orbital space surveillance that we've had to know where satellites are. But with the increasing problem, this is something – We've written about for 20 years. Space junk. Knowing what's up. Uh, I forget the number of, of, of pieces of significant space junk. You, you'll see fig, figures of 60 and 80,000. You'll see them in the, in the 100,000. But big enough pieces of junk that if they uh, hit something, they, uh, uh, a satellite, def, uh, they, could, uh, they could knock it out. Potentially coming back. I mean, the really big ones, like the Skylab and some of the other ones, are could do damage on Earth. But I think this gives us the uh, U.S. Uh, an advantage in uh, tracking tracking debris. Now, in my own thinking about that, and some of this is informed by the four years that I was a reserve officer at the old Ballistic Missile Defense Organization, and I'm not speaking about any any program that I was involved in or uh, even peripherally, given peripheral knowledge about it, but just thinking about it. If you know where the debris is and you want to have uh, create a cheap offensive capability, you can mask some of these smaller satellites. And Jim was talking about CubeSats, uh, to mask them as a potential space-based uh, anti-satellite, anti-satellite weapon, and I just, for one thing is, is that right now we have situations where uh, working satellites suddenly go blind. Sometimes they explode. The ex- explanation is, well, they ran into a piece of space junk. It's probably right. Uh, I may have been something in, internal uh, too uh, w- within it. But you, you guys see what I uh, what I'm sketching, and this is the kind. This is, this is almost like a, a guerrilla operation in uh, in space. If we can think of it, if I can think of it, somebody in China thought of it, you know, 15 years ago. And the thing is, I thought about it about when I, in, in 99, 2000 or, or so. But it's just it's it's also an example of of conceptualizing what is what are the tools you need if you're going to fight uh, uh, a uh, a space war and what is a, what what is a tool that is cheap and cost effective Jim spent a lot of time talking today mentioning you know, SpaceX's cost advantage it, it really is uh, it, it really is significant we can afford to send missions to uh, uh, to repair and 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 replenish. Uh, now the last thing I'll, I'll I'll mention is SpaceX X-37B. Well, the X-37 has been a, a puzzle for me. I always thought it was a, a more than a robotic shuttle. It looks like it could be a Air Force space combat. Uh, 
robot, and we have that thing up. It's, we've had a, an X-37 uh, in orbit for over two years in, in various places. I, I, one just came back recently, right, Jim? Yeah. I forget. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just went up again. Oh, it went up. All right. Yeah. But how many of them do we have? I don't know. But we have you know, two. We have two actual vehicles, uh, and they 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 don't go up right away. They go. They take a couple of years to get upgraded and refurbished and what have you. All right. We have uh, we have to be we have we have two we know about. All right. But the uh, and I'm not playing silly about that. Uh, this seems to be a very robust uh, system, and uh, it has it, it's. It's uh, launched uh, uh, satellites, and uh, I know who knows what else it's engaged in. Every once in a while, the Air Force uh, mentions it, and it certainly it gets publicity when it takes off and publicity when it lands. So, I suspect, and I wouldn't say this with you know just uh, rah rah, look at us. I think we've got some some not just technological advantages but operational experience advantages in, in systems that could be upgraded to uh, more sophisticated warfare uh, platforms, not using the kind of guerrilla technique that I sketched with, uh, you know, hi, we're faking space debris, even though that could be extremely effective, but one that could be carrying uh, other types of uh, interceptors uh, and uh, advanced uh, uh Electronic uh, w- weapons, even beam weapons. Uh, uh, I'll leave it at that and see what Dunnigan has to say about that. What do you What do you think about that, Jim? Beam weapons? Well, uh, possible, but uh, I tend to think I tend to be of the uh, you go to war with what you got right now. I go, no, no, so, I agree. With no, that. no, 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 no. I understand a lot of these a lot of these weapons, you know, are, could be game changers. But right now, I'm I'm talking about the edge we have right now. Uh, nobody really planned on uh, uh, SpaceX coming along, uh, and that's the uh, that's the advantage of the private sector. Uh, the Chinese, to a certain extent, have that. They do it in the military, and uh, for example, there are a lot of weapons that their Norinco and other firms. There's three or four big guys um, that uh, are are basically developed and produced for export only. And then that gives the army, the Chinese military, a chance, A, to see how the foreign users do with it and to get a couple of samples, which the manufacturer is happy to provide, uh, to try it out for themselves. And that's basically giving them a big edge because they don't have to worry about, like the Russians did, you get basically got one, you know, all right, you might have a couple of different design bureaus, as the Russians like to call them, but basically you only had one management team, you know, running the whole shebang. And that led to a lot of... Uh, uh, delays and uh, uh, lack of innovation. Uh, so the Chinese learned that lesson, uh, you know, from the from the West. They studied the West, and they have been, especially over the last ten years, they've been transit transiting away from all their old Russian Cold War era stuff and replacing it with as quickly as they can Western style designs. Like for example, their new warships, their new uh, destroyers are are more and more similar to the Burks. Uh, you know, the the tried and true uh, destroyer, which is our primary destroyer. And that's the Zumwalt, <laughs> the uh, basically uh, you know contractor Bonanza that like many other projects, uh, the B two bomber became too expensive, you know, to produce in more than, you know, sample uh, quantities. Um, So the Chinese are looking at space the same way, and they were surprised by SpaceX. Again, they're 
their scientific their scientific community in the space area was aware of that possibility, and they've been tinkering with it. But none of the manufacturers felt bold enough, as it were, or confident enough to go out and do it. So it was sort of a surprise. But for people, for scientists and engineers in the business, uh, the reaction to uh, SpaceX was more along the lines of it's about time. Not isn't that a wonderful I, surprise? I totally agree with that. It's somewhere on uh, our, our website is uh, a column I wrote after I interviewed Elon Musk. <clears throat> the column doesn't uh, at, at all reflect the uh, conversation we had. And my my memory, we talked uh, almost forty five minutes. I mean, he gave me as much time uh, as I wanted. We went off all kinds of, uh, in all kinds of directions. The thing that at, uh, he impressed me most about him is the guy is an example of a com- combined pragmatic dreamer dreaming pragmatic he had he he, he says he really had a uh, an operationally executable vision of how he was going to build SpaceX and where it was going to go and we were talking about well you're I, I, I came up with the term, and since then another fellow has uh, used it, uh, but it's it, it's not you know it's not it's any big deal. I said, well, you're you're space 4.0, and he, th- you know, we ch- uh, chuckled a little bit about that. Well, you you get you know, I mean, it's it's just a uh, you know quip stuff. It's kind of quip anybody can come up with, but. Uh, that it's an it, Jim. It's an, and you, you know this, Dan. It's an example of what a free enterprise society can do when you have somebody. He's got the economic assets and all the money he made from uh, his other other businesses, and and he saw the opportunity. Uh, I got to talk with Hans Mark, who was one of our top rocket guys, uh, the, the later the head of the. Uh, Aer- aeronautical engineering department at the University of Texas and also a chancellor of the U.S. system. But, I mean, he was at one time, I think, uh, Dr. Mark was uh, deputy director of, of Goddard. Uh, so yeah, there's a, a rocket, rocket man from the glory days uh, of NASA. And his his comment on this, uh, I didn't I didn't use it in that particular uh, column. His comment on this is that, uh, hey, Austin, this really is the future. What Musk and other guys uh, are, are are doing, they're doing in the commercial sector. What we were doing in the 50s and 60s, except he says, you got to realize we were tapping the uh, uh, creative capabilities of uh, our uh, commercial systems. We'd come in and look at, well, what does Northrop have? What does Grumman have? You know, and and the and and, and tell them, okay, you're ahead on this. We'll buy that. Right off the shelf, he says you don't read. A, Dr. Mark said you you don't read a lot about that in the histories. But we were living off of what our uh, commercial uh, uh, engineering and and uh, design uh, capabilities that had uh, out there in the open market. There were certain things, however, that we absolutely needed, and it was there you got into something. I'm I'm using my words for what Dr. Mark said, where you got into something that's more military-like where, okay, now the, the government's going to have to uh, provide money, maybe some 
lead on on what we think we need. But uh, he says what's nice now is that there's this is back to Dr. Mark's comment on on uh, on on SpaceX. And I'm going to say this conversation took place, guys, eight or nine years ago with with, with Dr. Mark. Uh, what's is that? that the design capabilities and, and the knowledge are out there on the commercial market so he can go find uh, the uh, the talent he needs in order to, uh, to carry it off and then top it off with the fact that he had a, a, a capital resource to do it. Uh, Chinese, it'd be very difficult, and you, everybody can see why now with Hong Kong and uh, the, uh, the lies with the COVID-19 Wuhan virus, it's tough for them to be able to do it because you need a free exchange of uh, uh, ideas and creative people and the opportunity to make mistakes, which uh, SpaceX did. But they've corrected them and they could go out and, and we had this problem. Go find somebody who knows how to fix it. Or we'll figure out how to fix it because we're testing it ourselves. The Chinese have the problem of we're going to lose face if we admit admit to our failures. That wasn't the problem with SpaceX. You had all these uh, entrepreneurs in there says, well, you know, we, we expect this sort of thing. And we've already uh, programmed for it. Uh, financially, not to say it's coming easy, but programming, you know, have the capital and time to correct it. So it's, there's a systemic advantage. Again, I'm not going rah-rah, just take a look at the, at the situation. Can they steal it? Jim, you've already talked about that. Yeah, they can steal the technology. They can steal some of the ideas. Can they manufacture it to the quality we, we can? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. You'd know more about that than I would. China has a problem with the uh, with with, uh, with the with getting that innovation. Uh, it's a cultural thing, you know. The Chinese are great at learning, you know, calculus at an early age, but thinking outside the box is something that is never encouraged. Now they've tried to get away from that, uh, in part by sending a lot of graduate students uh, to uh, American schools uh, to doctorate programs. Um, what we didn't realize for a long time is, uh, is a lot of them were acting as intelligence assets as well, some unknowingly, but they all came back and got debriefed by the MSS, you know, the intelligence, the secret police, the intelligence uh, directorate. Um, and the, that was the thousand grains of sand. You take all these little bits of information. So they had these huge databases of uh, little bits, uh, which can be reassembled and they can basically make something. Now, that is basically playing into their cultural uh, capabilities. Uh, um, but they still have a hard time finding the spark. Uh, and that's been a problem with a lot of other cultures. It's always been the advantage of the United States. Now, it, nobody's really de- been able to define exactly how that came about. It's, I, I think it's a lot of it has to do with the entrepreneurial attitude, which is constantly under attack. Well, that's by, a point, that's a point by, I made that, I, that, that was clear to me from that interview with, with – with, I didn't mean to interrupt on that – from Musk, entrepreneurial attitude, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, it's been easier in the United States for a long time uh, to do that. Uh, the Air Force, for example, one of the ideas they had, which may never go very far, was to allocate money for the next generation fighter jets uh, to uh, several uh, smaller contracts 
for contractors to basically uh, come up with whatever they can. What they were trying to recapture was what happened until, I guess, through the 60s and 70s, where you had a lot of new aircraft being produced. Now, this, this is basically an offshoot of what happened in World War II. We were coming up with new aircraft literally within months, uh, and some of them were outstanding. I mean, the first P-51 was a so-so ground attack aircraft, but adding a new engine and making a few other tweaks, and you had one of the best, you know, prop uh, fighters in the in the world. Uh, jets, mm, a little more of a problem, uh, because the uh, nobody was willing to take a lot of the kind of chances they took with prop uh, uh, aircraft. But there were a lot of jets by the late 50s, 60s, uh, they were turning out new models of jet aircraft, uh, but where we ran a, a cropper and a lot of uh, aircraft industry, uh, you know, executives, you know, were very uh, aware of this and they pointed it out. They, back then, you could basically uh, criticize more freely uh, to this degree. Um, and uh, they pointed out the Air Force has become obsessed with <laughs> not making mistakes, which is suicide if you're trying to develop new technology um, and developing new technology because the key to the World War II and the post-World War II rapid development of new aircraft was basically just turning the engineers uh, and pilots uh, loose uh, to do, especially the pilots, involving the pilots is important because they're going to fly these things. Uh, they, so they have skin in the game, literally. Um and to develop it like that with the, the two groups, you know, right there working hand in hand. Uh, and the, that's one reason why the Air Force for years have been sending a lot of pilots to aeronautical engineering courses. But they never developed a culture that could let them really, you know, go wild. Now they're trying to bring that back. But it's hard. It's difficult. Once you've got this bureaucratic uh, tech, culture uh, where, you know, uh, again, the uh, uh, what what they call the uh, the safetyism, I think it was what they're calling it now. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that, you know, in politics. Um, you don't. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, current President Trump, he's an entrepreneur, and he's anathema. I mean, the one reason he ticks off the establishment is because he's willing to take chances. He's willing to 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 do the most ungentlemanly thing of all and get things done. Uh, because the, the ancient saying in the Chinese bureaucracy, and they invented government bureaucracy, was the object is not to win or lose, but to keep the game going. And one of the bits of uh, the Eastern philosophy we picked up unknowingly, well, Mr. Parkinson may have uh, noted it, but I don't know if he ever attributed it to, to the Chinese, uh, was the, uh, you know, a, a self-perpetuating bureaucracy whose main goal is simply to keep itself going as a bureaucracy and not to really, you know, do what they say they're going to do. So we're dealing with space technology, especially we're dealing with not just the, the assets we have, the manufacturing plants, uh, the designs we currently have, the equipment we really have, but the ability to innovate quickly enough or quicker than the enemy. Uh, there was that Air Force officer, ah, crap, I forget his name. He was the, uh, the, the decision-making loop when they were trying in the 50s to figure out what made an ace. And basically it came to uh, the same thing that makes a great basketball player, a sense of where you are. Somebody wrote a book with that title once. But Colonel Boyd, are you talking about that Boyd? Is that not the fellow's name that you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he got, he got, God bless him, he got credit for that. Uh, but it was a very fundamental 
idea which basically sunk into the Air Force and it influenced their aircraft design. That's, for example, what makes the, uh, the F-35 such a capable aircraft, even more so than the F-22. Now, a lot of journalists or a lot of you know, non-aircraft designers don't get that. They're still looking at aircraft in terms of World War II or Cold War parameters. They didn't even apply during the late Cold War. It was all a question of being able to uh, know where you are and react quickly. For example, it was revealed at the end of the Cold War when all the Russian secrets could come out, both the ones we discovered and the ones the Russians had still held on to, was that one of the huge advantages of Western aircraft was they were built to be flexible. In other words, to, to rapidly maneuver. Uh, the Russians had the hard, hard statistics. That's why on paper, uh, their jets looked like much more formidable aircraft. But in combat, it was the ability to rapidly adapt. And that means not just in terms of thought, but in terms of you know maneuverability. Not, not how should I put it, uh, theatrical acrobatics, but simply, for example, to transit, you know, from one type of uh, movement to another. Energy addition, they were calling it, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and the, the Russians tried to master that with their, their SU-27 uh, and their MiG-29 generation, and to a certain extent, they, they got it, or at least they got a lot closer than before. But it's the same thing in any technology. Uh, you The innovation is what makes it Superior, and I pointed this out years ago when comparing the the B B B seventeen, the most frequently used, and the B twenty four bombers, heavy bomber during World War two, with the F four, which came about you know late fifties, early sixties. Uh, they both the 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 F four had a uh, had a uh, two man crew. Uh, it, uh, it, it weighed about the same, it carried about the same bomb load, or actually a high, higher bomb load. Uh, it weighed less than the, the, uh, the B-17, um, and it was more expensive. But what you were paying for was knowledge. Knowledge acquired and, and maintained, kept, not thrown away uh, over the years. And when they got up to the F-22, they got so obsessed uh, with the, uh, the stealth that they failed to realize what was really important in the aircraft, and the F-35 did that. The, 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 uh, the data fusion and the awareness. And all the pilots who get into the, uh, the uh, qualify and fly the F-35 from whatever country they come to, they come back, you know, praising to the high hills the fact that this aircraft gives you more awareness of what's up there than any aircraft before. Now it's not because it's faster, because it can it can turn you know cartwheels or you know uh, just turn inside the other guy's you know turning circle. It's because you spot the enemy before he spots you, and you spot him by a with a big advantage. Uh, and this is something that you know, the, the civilians and especially the journalists had a hard time accepting the fact that. Future air combat is not going to involve dogfighting. Dogfighting is the exception, you know, not the rule. It's been that way for years, decades. Uh, you're going to get off a long range shot, uh, and the enemy's going to be blown out of the air before he realizes you're even around. And then you're going to go on to the next target. Uh, and this is the same thinking that you have to apply to space operations, the CubeSats. Now, the X-37B, what's interesting about that is most of its missions – and the latest one went off a couple of weeks ago. I think that's the sixth uh, in the last decade. Um, and they're lasting longer and longer. The, the, the next one is liable to last you know, for a couple of years uh, or more than a year. Uh, 
the uh, is what the, what they're doing up there and how they're doing it and coming back. Because one thing, the amateur astronomers, the amateur satellite spotters, and the huge community connected via the internet, which become had become very useful in tracking uh, formerly you know hidden or secret satellites, is the X thirty seven B has been doing some strange stuff up there. Now they can spot it; it's in a low orbit, uh, and there are enough people searching the skies. And say, ah, Found it, and uh, but if you get that message, you know, uh, 48, 72 hours later, it's gone. Uh, so the question is, how are they? How much fuel are they carrying? They won't tell you that. Uh, what does it cost to to make a uh, orbital, you know, change, uh, change position? They're not saying that. Uh, and it does have a, a cargo bay, but they're not saying exactly what's in there. They'll throw out some crumbs, you know, a few experiments that are not top secret. Uh, but it's the secret experiments they're doing. And the fact that they've been doing this for a decade and the missions have been getting longer and longer. And every one of them has returned uh, under its own control. It's a robotic landing system. Um, and, uh, you know, t- a tweak basically, you know, uh, improved as it were, not just refurbished. Uh and sent up, you know, a year or so later when the, when the uh, first one comes back. Uh, they keep talking about building larger ones, but apparently they're getting so much out of the, 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 X30, the two X-37Bs they got that they don't see any reason to build a larger one when they're getting everything they need from the, the one they currently have. Now, that's something we're not going to know about exactly what is coming out of the X-37B until all that technology developed there comes out somewhere else and people say, well, where'd that come from? And it either leaks out or they basically say it, X-37B. So this is the kind of innovation that bothers the heck out of the Chinese and the Russians. I mean, the Chinese ran that Killsat experiment, you know, where they basically uh, a, 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 a rammed uh, one of their defunct satellites and created this huge debris. By the way, uh, with better, uh, how should I put it, better instruments, they can now spot over 200,000 uh, pieces of debris uh, that are capable of doing damage. Uh, the one thing we have uh, to our advantage is that there are fi- literally 1,500 layers of orbital space. In other words, that that have enough space, uh, are tall enough, as it were, uh, for a satellite, any object to o- safe, operate safely. Uh, and each of those contains, oh, God, I, whoops, I don't have it in front of me, but it contains like 600,000, you know, uh, cubic centimeters of, uh, of, you know, of space. So it's, it's a vast space up there. But I think as Austin mentioned, a lot of the orbits are used again and again. So the key is not so much to get rid of the space debris, which is not a, a trivial task, but people keep working at it, but it's how to find ways to use efficiently the less favorable orbital layers because you've got plenty of space up there. Uh, in fact, what a weapon for a Space Force weapon would be one which would basically uh, saturate uh, a layer that the, uh, the enemy is using a lot of. And they might catch on to this if they notice more and more of our satellites are going up and, and, and avoiding, you know, layer uh, 917 or 918 or whatever the case may be. But that is a tactic that is certainly doable if you have the technology to both, you know, poison the layer and also to keep your satellites out of it. Uh, and of course, that's where maneuverable satellites, that's where satellite repair and refueling is such a holy grail. Space shuttle was supposed to do it. They talked about it. They actually did it a couple of times, but it's so hideously expensive. And that's another bugaboo with the engineering community. They said, basically, when the Man on the Moon project was out, they pointed out even then that we could do it a lot cheaper and a lot quicker if we just used robots. 
you know, putting people in those ships is hideously expensive and complicated. But if you're just, you know, if you're just sending robots up, as we show, as we've shown with the Mars landers and other, I think there's one on the moon as well. These things last, oh, not forever, but longer than they're supposed to. Uh, I think there's one up on Mars that's what ten years or something like that. It finally went dark, or it's intermittent. But anyway, that's the kind of technology that is a lot cheaper. A lot easier to send in into orbit or send into to Mars, as the case may be, uh, and will bring back a lot more information. Uh, now, not 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 basically boohooing you know, the 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 benefits of finding out what people in space, you know, uh, you know, suffer from and what it takes to keep humans in space, but for orbital research, you don't really need humans up there. I mean, that's just a propaganda thing. And the engineers just go nuts. They're saying, yeah, that's all very nice. And yeah, being an astronaut or a cosmonaut or a takeonaut, if you're a Chinese, is a big deal. It's easy to, you know, the ladies love it. Uh, but if you simply want to get work done, send the droids. Uh, there is one argument that I have heard for a, a larger version of an X-37, uh, Jim, and, and that would be, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's big, 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 well, it's, you'd be able to, certain kinds of uh, uh, satellites, you move them into the bay of the, uh, uh, yeah. of the uh, of the ship for robotic repair inside in other words maybe even modernization and then pop it back out i mean that that's not it a, a fantasy if you had the space to do it with some of these more valuable uh, i mean it within the uh, within the repair craft uh, to do it that that's it, it might it might be worth uh, having uh, a uh, well, they, they already robot had, to, to do that. So yeah, they already had the X-37C. The whole thing is the robotic I, 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 technology. I now well, they've got that. Yeah. They've done they've done some limited repairs and refueling, but again, it comes down to things you never hear about. You know, the the robotics, uh, and people. You know, that's one of those things like nuclear power. Oh, robotics! You don't want the robots will take over. Well, I don't think a lot of satellite repair robots are going to rule the world. Someday. No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> But you know, <laughs> give a journal, give a journalist on a slow news day, uh, wants to do a story on space, and he'll. Uh, go, I, I can go see crazy. it. The the, the uh, uh, malign droid builds its own beam weapon, and right. you know, that's it. Right. There you go. There's your plot <laughs> right there. Uh, well, hey, Dan, I think we've yes. covered a lot of it. Yeah, I think I think we've hit the uh, point of uh, diminishing returns there with the uh, robots taking over Malign space. Malign robot, yes. Yeah. No, but the bottom line, the best space force is the robotic space force. Right. All right, we'll, we'll talk to you gentlemen next time. Bye. Yeah.